I think this does superhero as with a capital S superhero genre. You've been capitalizing uh, it, things a lot lately. I'm just letting you know that. Well, it's <laughs> fuck you uh, with a capital F. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California with the waves chillaxing behind you in your Zoom studio. How are you yeah. doing? Uh, I am good. Cassidy Robinson, uh, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. See, this is the problem. You, you introduce me and then mm-hmm. you ask me a question and then you're like, oh, by the way, you have to introduce me. Right. Uh, the background that I've chosen looks like my room. I'm using a picture of my room, but it's actually not my room. Okay, you're doing a bit that I did not set you up for. You just were like, just, just I have I went this in my it. head. I'm not even listening to what he's yeah. saying. I'm just going forward with the bit. Yes, and is rudimentary. I'm beyond that now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a whole different podcast, but you're not wrong. <laughs> um, okay, so what I wanted to bring up at the top of the podcast, uh, just so I remember it, we are now on more streaming devices, particularly popular ones. <laughs> um, yeah, this is big news. Yes, we are now on Spotify and Google Podcasts, but the issue was we weren't on Spotify for a long time because... I was grandfathered into some plan that doesn't even exist on our hosting site anymore. And I tried to get us on there about like two years ago and gotten a heated back and forth with one of their customer service representatives via chat. And basically they told me, even though I was paying the same amount that the Spotify plan costs, that because it's technically a different plan that doesn't exist anymore that they won't let me do it until I upgrade. So anyways, they've changed enough shit that that we're on there now. Yay. (laughs) We might've been able to be on there months ago, who knows, or years ago. Um, But this is the first time I noticed that we were able to do that. Yes. If you happen to use Google podcasts or Spotify, we are now listenable on those streams. Um, So, Today, we are going to be reviewing Wonder Woman 1984, the somewhat awaited sequel uh, to Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman. I would say it was much awaited after a whole year of COVID delays. Right, right. And it ended up coming out on HBO Max, and we were able to watch it, so we're going to be reviewing that. And then at the end of the podcast, we are also going to be reviewing 1983's Valley Girl, which was an accident, actually. I didn't plan that. (laughs) traveling back in time a year yeah i didn't plan on making this an 80s episode but because those happen to be the uh the films both both of us are 80s babies we we were born a year after the events of wonder woman 1984 exactly yeah uh so i did come up with a a game a uh a movie suggestion uh segment if you will And I I was thinking about Wonder Woman 1984. There's also a remake of Valley Girl, apparently, that just came out this year. 
So yeah, I, you know, I didn't hear anything about that. It looks. Terrible. I only knew about it because I accidentally stumbled upon it trying to watch it. I don't know if it takes place modern day, if it takes place in the eighties, but it looks pretty eighties. And the poster says the awesomest love story ever told. Right. But, uh, I wanted to come up with an idea where these movies are obviously taking place in the eighties. Well, one was made in the eighties. So the other one takes place in the eighties. And I guess there's sort of an aesthetic that everyone sort of thinks about when they think of the eighties. And it's, I think somewhat a cinematic aesthetic, you know, it's it's gaudy. It's already you know filled with artifice. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's colorful. Got the, it, it's got uh, the fashion, um, and you and by that I mean it has like usually heightened versions of the fashion. Right. Like you see, you usually see in 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 a movie set in the eighties that's not from the eighties. You usually see every aspect of eighties fashion. All so of you'll one. see yeah, like. Yeah. Mods, punkers, uh, mm-hmm. the big shoulder suits. Uh, you'll see everything like all in one frame. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and that's changing a little bit. Like, think things like Stranger Things or whatever is kind of like, you know, sort of unpacking that in a different way. But what I wanted to do is come up with two movies each uh, that we think properly or, I guess, aesthetically represent the 80s in a way that we like. And then I guess I'll let you go first. What is your first selection? I'm going to take the obvious one. I, I mean, Oh, and really, by the way, these are movies that were not made in the 80s. Yes, that was my only rule. 80s movies not from the 80s. <laughs> yeah, they could take place in the 80s or they could just have an 80s aesthetic. Um, they're not mutually exclusive, but... Yeah, so I mean, the obvious answer, I think, I think the best... The most fun representation of the 80s outside of the 80s is The Wedding Singer. Uh, I was almost going to make this a rule to not mention it, but then I thought, why not? It's old enough. It's not as obvious as it used to be. Okay. I mean, if you want, we can make that a mulligan round because it is, it just, I think it captures the 80s like pretty much perfectly in, in a way that, uh, surprisingly not a lot of other movies have been able to do i think at least as fun it is chock-a-block with all the things in the way that you were talking about like it i mean it's specifically dropping in pop culture references as punchlines yeah and which is the only i think is funny about that film is there's like no story reason for it to take place in the 80s like, there's nothing about it being the 80s that really informs the love story or anything like that. I guess you could say, like, the materialism of, like, the Reagan era or whatever. Like, you, that's a little bit of a stretch. Basically, asshole boyfriend, you know, and pining uh, wedding singer who has a broken heart who wants to date a waitress. Um Nothing sure, about yeah. that story needs to be. They could have. They could have told that same exact story in 1997. Yes, that's true. But I think there was more reason than just that. And honestly, a lot of it comes from movies like uh, what we're going to review later today when we talk about Valley Girl. Kind I think true. that was a big reason behind it. Is that movie was trying to evoke the 80s rom com, and it does very successfully. So. Yes, maybe the plot itself, the 80s, aren't 
totally integral, but thematically they kind it kind of is. Well, I just wonder. The only reason I bring this up, not because I think that's a a dig on the movie. I like I like the movie quite a bit actually. I think it's one of Sandler's best films, especially in his like Happy Madison world. I with no with no hesitation say it's his best movie. Like right. I think it um it's one of his funniest and it's one of the ones of his that ages the best. Uh, because it it it's less reliant on Adam Sandler's shtick and more just again trying to evoke a certain mood, a certain feeling. Right. It's an effective romantic comedy on top of being <clears throat> a funny, um, you know, broad comedy. It also has a very effective love story, and they, the, you know, those two actors just have a ton of chemistry, which is why they've done a lot of movies together. But Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler, but. Uh, what I think's interesting about that, the reason I brought that up is that I wonder, was it originally written to be in the 80s or were whoever, the studio or the Adam Sandler, whoever was involved in the writing process, um, did they look at the script and their punch up was basically, it needs a hook. Like, it can't just be a love story. Like, what makes this, like, mm-hmm. let's, how do we make this funny visually? I... I, I don't know. I I think I could I could see that. I think that is plausible, but I also see it equally plausible as them pitching it as we're going to do an 80s comedy today, but it's going to yeah. be in the 80s. So I I could see it going either way, honestly. And it has all like Adam Sandler has his like musical obsessions and yeah. it's a very music-filled which was a thing in the 80s, because in the 80s was MTV and all of that. And music played its a role in films in a bigger way than it did in previous uh, decades. And the MTV aesthetic starts to roll in in a big way, both in editing yeah. and in the way the soundtrack is used. And this movie definitely has a ton of music cues. It's, you know, a big, big soundtrack. And brought all, a lot of those 80s songs back in a big way. Like, I started hearing them on the radio more after that movie came out. Totally, yeah. Like Dead or Alive and um, Thompson Twins and stuff like that. All right, cool. Well, yes, well, that's an obvious choice, but a good one. I, my first film, I'm going to go for something kind of aesthetically different. Um, I'm going to say American Psycho, which okay. we talked about a little bit, or it was mentioned in passing last week when we were talking about Batman Begins and Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Um. I think this is a really interesting uh, thing to focus on the 80s, specifically the Wall Street yuppie culture. Yeah. And it's a different take on that on the 80s aesthetic. It isn't just all broad shoulder pads and, you know, Rubik's Cubes and, mm-hmm. you know, leg warmers. It's also it's this there's, there's some of that. There's though. a little bit of it, but it it's it's subtle and Mary Heron's direction of the film, which I think actually is one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't get the satire of the movie, didn't understand that it's a dark comedy, is mm-hmm. that her use of the 80s thing isn't isn't just evoking camp. Yeah. She's more, she's kind of more interested in this steely sterile coldness of New York, Manhattan in the 80s. And and I think, you know, there is... And of uh, that culture. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of not-so-subtle... Uh, well, I, I guess maybe it is subtle. Uh, commentary on, yeah, that Wall Street, like, 
you know, uh, literally, like, he's literally a killer, but, you know, like, also, it not uncommon for them to, you know, call themselves killers or whatever. Like, right. for them to approach, like, you know, stock markets and money management with the same uh, level of Crudeness. sociopathy... Yeah, yeah, as as a serial killer would. So, you know, I think it's I mean, that's a great movie too and and really smart and really right. uh, also clever. Also you utilize the soundtrack, but unlike Wedding Singer, which is leaning into the emotional moments with the soundtrack uh, needle drops, this film subverts the needle drops and you know creates these weird juxtapositions between like Huey Lewis in the news and violent murder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, that's a solid choice. Yeah, I definitely. Oh, also, and I, I wanted to bring this up. If you have the Blu-ray version of it, maybe it's the DVD as well. I don't know. But if you have the Blu-ray of American Psycho, there is a wonderful special feature on there. It's about forty-five minutes to an hour long, talking about the downtown scene the downtown culture of New York in the eighties. And there's a, a lot of great um, uh, documentary subjects who speak on the subject. J uh, James St. James, the famous club kid who uh, like set up the whole like debutante club culture in the eighties. It talks all about that. And then you have Michael Musto, who was a writer about, about uh, uh, for the village voice at the time. You have another writer who specifically was um, writing about sex clubs in the eighties in New York. So you get a, it's, it's one of my favorite special features on a movie and it informs that movie, uh, in a really cool way because they don't talk about, you know, Brett Easton Ellis or, or American psycho at all. It's just about New York in the eighties and what it looked like to be in downtown culture. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That sounds cool. Cool. All right. What is your next pick? Uh, my next one is a little off kilter as well. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I don't even remember if it's actually set in the '80s or if it's just the aesthetic. If it's just sort of the vibe of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I picked uh, "Drive" by Nicholas Winding Refn. Sure. Yeah. Um. Be I mean, yeah. I think. Uh, didn't he come out and say like he was he was trying to make like a noir John Hughes movie basically like a crime thriller? I uh, Nicholas Winding Refn says a lot of weird things. Um, yes, for sure. But, but yeah, I think it was something to that effect. He said he was like he was like high on cough syrup or something because he had the flu when he was taking a meeting with Ryan Gosling and they were listening to the car stereo and pop music was playing like the, you know, the, the pet shop boys or something. And he, he had this, like, you know, it came to him in a vision, like what the aesthetic of the movie would be. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> Tracks. <laughs> I also think, you know, this is by far Nicholas Winding Refn's most watchable movie. And, and I right. think that pop aesthetic is a lot of the reason why. Mm -hmm. um, it has a very pop sensibility. It has, uh, you know, it just the vibe of it. Again, the style. Um, it's a hard-boiled, uh, you know, revenge thriller. But it is... It's a weird... It's It's a... It is 
his his most accessible film, but that's not saying a ton because <laughs> there are a yeah. lot of people for whom this movie is still a little too artsy for them. Um, there's a lot that's, of scenes where you know Ryan Gosling like has maybe three lines of dialogue in the whole film, um, but there's still like 12 minute scenes where he's just staring at you, uh, <laughs> and I'm all about it. But um, yeah, I think that there's you know I noticed immediately while watching it evoking Michael Mann with the cityscapes, the the L.A. Uh, skyline, and uh, the way he integrates music on it. I was immediately thought of movies like Heat, and which was a 90s film. But, um, you know, Michael Mann was one of the co- uh, co-creators Thief. of Miami Vice. Also, wasn't um, Thief a big Thief, yeah. on that movie? Thief was a, a very big inspiration on the movie, aesthetically, as well as Manhunter, um, which were both made in the 80s, as well as uh, an older film, which might have been late 70s, actually, but Walter Hill's um, The Driver. Oh. Um, that might have been 77, 78, maybe even 79, but I would you would have to look that up. But that's definitely a antecedent to heat or or to um drive as well uh yeah and uh i the the reason i picked this one is just like there you know i think when people think of the 80s it's easy to think immediately of wedding singer it's uh uh i know you said movies but like glow i think uh television's been doing it a lot lately yeah and i think television and i think uh in a lot of ways television um uh, what I was going to say about Glow is I think it it probably is the most uh, accurate as far as like a broad scope. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, so I picked Drive specifically because it's a crime thriller, um, but it still has very like 80s vibes and, and right. it does it unironically, um, which I think is really easy to look at 80s stuff 80s nostalgia from a very like just getting the stuff that's cool and not getting the the um you know and not looking at it earnestly and i think that drive while being a very fashionable and cool movie Mm -hmm. um uh it just represents a an aspect of 80s at least film that is a little less obvious i guess yeah i think the you know uh, Nicholas Winding Refn is kind of a dirt. He's kind of like Tarantino in the way that he, he pulls from multiple sources and he kind of mixes and matches and does these pastiche homages sort of subverts them in a, in a new kind of cool way. But I'd say the big difference between the two of them is, you know, it really comes down to the fact that Nicholas Winding Refn comes from Dutch art film, the world of Dutch art film and, 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 uh, Tarantino comes from the suburbs of Los Angeles. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. the way that they think about film. And I think that Refin, he he sees the 80s and that, that Michael Mann aesthetic mm. as this kind of fairy tale dreamland. And so he sure, creates yeah. surrealism out of, out of the references rather than Tarantino, who would be using them for these, you know, fast editing or even cultural touch points to Mm -hmm. to make reference to film as a whole yeah okay so the last movie i wanted to mention in this segment is a teen romance called edge of 17 
Um, not the film that we talked about uh, with Haley Steinfeld that came out a couple years ago. Um, but it is a, a teen gay romance that was made around 1998. It was an independent film. Um, kind of a Sundancey type thing. And it takes place in the middle of the 80s. And it is so convincing in the aesthetic, not just the aesthetics of like costume and music and things like that and set design, but even the way it's shot, like the film stock they use and the coloration, you would, unless you didn't know, you would be sure that it was made in the middle of the 80s. Even like, I mean, it probably helps that it was a movie that was made for two cents. But even like the the what they use for sound, um, the way that they record the the sound kind of has that kind of mono quality to it that films you know made in the nineties and up and on don't quite have the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it takes place in the eighties. The characters are well aware that it's the eighties. The main character he writes like synthy dark wave shit in his bedroom, and it's sort of a coming out drama. About this kid who goes off to for a summer job uh, to work at a a like shitty fair or whatever um, or a carnival kind of thing, um, and while he's there, he meets he meets his first love in this other guy who goes off to college, and they have this you know hot summer romance that he leads him into his senior year where he's trying to sort of figure himself out and he's like trying to like, you know, whatever it's a gay coming of age story, but, um, and there's a million of them just like it, but it's one of the better ones. And partly because I think that aesthetic really comes through really, really well. Very, very good performances. Um, it also has, uh, what's her name? Who's in orange is the new black. She plays a key lead in it. Leah Delaria. I, I forget her, her character's name in Orange is the New Black. Um, but uh but yeah, it's 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 a really good facsimile of 80s dramas. And basically, I think the director said when he was growing up watching like the John Hughes movies, he always you know, he always kind of like projected himself into into the Molly Ringwald characters, and he just wanted a film out there where you know a, a young gay person didn't have to do that yeah, yeah. um no i mean it, it makes sense uh that's cool yeah i've never seen it but um it used to be on netflix occasionally back when they had a more robust lbgt section um mm-hmm. it's kind of been left to die on the vine as of the last <laughs> like four years or so as they've yeah. done a lot of their content has, honestly, but they're not as interested in catalog titles as they used to be. But you might be able to find it out there. But it, but yeah, I highly suggest it. it's really, really good 80s film and like really strong use of music and all the stuff we like 80s movies for. And like, as even though like the gay coming out dramas became kind of a cliche after a while, mm-hmm. this was one of the better ones, one of the more sincere ones. And I think. You know, actually putting it in the '80s kind of creates a different, a different spin on that narrative. Yeah, cool. Well, that is. Oh, what you had a third film? I just want to know what it was. Oh, uh, 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 Wet Hot American Summer. 
Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, it kind of like um, Wedding Singer where it plays the 80s stuff for laughs, but yeah. like to the most heightened degree, like it uh, to the point of absurdity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the sequel or the Netflix series or whatever, like Ronald Reagan is literally a villain in the, <laughs> in the series. Uh, you know, so... Um, I never watched the Netflix thing. It's pretty good. I mean... So there was, I think, a series and then a sequel movie, mm-hmm. or or a sequel movie and then a series. I, but it's it's good. It, it has the same like irreverent humor. Uh, I I think it doesn't quite have the same charm that the first movie has, just because the first one was just this weird little movie that they made that you know earned yeah. its cult audience, and then. Uh, they made this one, you know, after Bradley Cooper, Amy Poehler, all these people were already stars. And so it, I'm like 12 years older. Yeah. 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 Uh, and there's some fun, fun stuff they play with that because it takes place like the next summer. Uh, (laughs) um, I, I, yeah, so it's, it's pretty good. It's worth a watching if you like the original, but you know, like any comedy sequel, um, it just doesn't quite have the same punch. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it, I mean, the, that movie's specifically making reference to, like, the camp uh, counselor movies of the 80s, like Meatballs and mm-hmm. and even a little bit of Caddyshack and that type of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, totally. which is a different, even a different kind of angle on the 80s, because it's not all about the soundtrack stuff or the MTV stuff. That's, a like, this body style of, like, dude bro comedies. Yeah, which are also coming-of-age stories, but, right. like... Yeah. In a but similar all, all vein. All within like one summer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Best summer of our lives, which is kind of a genre within a genre. Um, and in the same vein, I'll make a little sub recommendation for a TV show that uh, Amazon put out a few years ago called Red Oaks. I think that's what it's called. Um, it is. It, it's about a, a kid that works. It's like he's in, but it's sort of like the graduate meets meatballs. He's like uh, just graduated high school, him and his friends, and they go work in a country club with all of these rich assholes. And he falls in love with one of the rich assholes' daughters, um, who he's not allowed to fall in love with. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But it, there's two seasons of it. The second season gets a little like artsy fartsy and it's not as funny. Um, but the first season is really great. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and get into Wonder Woman 1984, and I'll let you set that up. Okay, uh, yeah, so Wonder Woman 1984 is the sequel to Wonder Woman, um, directed also directed by Patty Jenkins. Wonder Woman is in 1984. <laughs> yes, which <laughs> is some decades after the last one ended. Yeah, which was... Uh, with tw- uh, 40 years. Right. And I guess she doesn't age or something. So that's a thing. Yeah. Cause she's like an immortal goddess. Right. And it takes place before Batman and justice league movies or whatever. Yeah. But, but luckily uh, this one has no ties to those movies whatsoever. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. So they find this stone that grants these wishes. Um, and at first it seems sort of, uh, harmless. It seems sort of just idyllic. She uses her wish to bring back Steve Trevor, her dead boyfriend from World War II, 
Uh, Kristen Wiggs uses this wish to basically steal her powers. And right, she has a she has a crush on on Diana. That's her name, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she has a crush like, on Diana um, and decide decide she wants to be exactly like her, um, which, unbeknownst to her, also gives her superpowers. Yes, because she thinks that yeah, she doesn't know Diana's Wonder Woman. Yeah, and then uh, Pedro Pascal's character Max Lord has been searching for this stone to become the successful 80s man that he knows he should be Mm -hmm. um, and eventually gets his hands on it and wishes to become the stone itself. Um, And so through that, he starts getting uh, people to make wishes and then gaining power through them because unbeknownst to all of these characters, the wishes come with a cost. The classic monkey's monkey's paw. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and so the cost for Diana is she starts to lose her powers to Kristen Wiig's character. Kristen Wiig starts to lose her humanity, and Pedro Pascal is is slowly being eaten away, uh, dying. Unclear. Uh, unclear yeah. exactly what's going on. Uh, he's there's, becoming there's more... There's a lot in this movie that's unclear. <laughs> he's becoming more powerful, it seems. He... He sort of becomes the stone itself and therefore sort of becomes like an evil genie. Um, yeah, but he can't make the wishes. He he doesn't control the power. He has to get people to wish for the right things. And then right. he can he can take whatever uh, whatever he wants from as the from cost. those wishes. Basically, he's using this power to manipulate people into wishing for things that's going to going to benefit him rather than the world. And it starts to get very geopolitical. Yeah. Very quickly. Yes. So this movie came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, Christmas day. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of immediately got shit on in a big way. Um, to the point that I had no expectations really. Um, I think, I think we might have had a very similar experience. Maybe. But. We'll see how this, this review goes. So I was expecting the worst, basically. And given that it's coming out of the DC Studios, Zack Snyder produces kind of thing, um, it's not hard to imagine that how bad it could be. I was a moderate fan of the first one. I thought it was actually pretty good, pretty decent. Definitely great for that body of films. And kind of a, their their first real success. So I went into this movie, and I'm not going to say that it's a good film or even a great film, but I also think it's being unfairly maligned. Oh, I don't 100%. think it's that bad. It's just really corny, and maybe that's okay. I actually liked the corniness. Okay, so I it's not unknowingly corny. Yeah, I I. I have a couple thoughts, uh, a couple minds of Wonder Woman 1984. Mm-hmm. Both of those are, uh, it's not as bad as people say. No. Um, but I, I think there is stuff in this movie that I love with a capital L. And then there is stuff where I think the movie was edited really weird or something. Because there's some really jarring stuff as well. Um so the core of this movie, I think, is uh, Gal Gadot and Chris Pine, yeah. Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, and seeing their 
you know, uh, them be reunited. There's this, the fun fish out of water elements. Which with... is reversed from the first film because she was a goddess who landed on Earth and it's like, oh, what are forks for? Do I brush my hair with it? Or like that kind of thing. <laughs> and in, in 1984, now it's like, oh, I'm from the 40s. I, this trash can is a piece of art. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I really liked that element of it. Um, I really liked all the characters, really. I really liked Kristen Wiig's mm -hmm. uh, uh, turn as uh, Barbara, uh, eventually becomes Cheetah. Um, and I really, really, really liked Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord. Uh, right. He's leaning into a lot. Now, you're a little bit more Pascal... Um prepared or you know more about him because you were a game of thrones watcher and i guess he had a pretty big part in that yeah uh so when yeah he he had a significant uh yes i he only know him from the mandalorian and he doesn't you know reveal his face through the majority of that show that's fair uh no i i love Pedro so, Pascal. does he, he have is... that accent naturally or is his voice in The Mandalorian, which sounds pretty, like, North American. Um, yeah, he he has a, a bit of an affectation. Um, he has he has a little bit of an accent. Because um, he's, pl he's playing a immigrant in, yes. in the film. Yeah, I believe he is, in, in real life, he is, oh God, uh, Chilean. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh... And they use that in the material. And what's actually kind of funny is there's like, there's obvious allusions to Donald Trump. It's just there. I don't want to like force it, but I don't have to. It's but pretty on the nose. And um, he's also. And also yeah. just kind of like any like rich asshole from the 80s, like, you know, capitalist uh, CEO type. I, w I actually thought more of um, what's his name? The guy from Wolf of Wall Street. Um Oh, yeah, him. Yeah, he he's more who I <clears throat> thought of. Um, <clears throat> Bedford or whatever. Yeah, I forget his name. Um, because he kind of came from nothing, but wanted to be something, and then through that, through his ambition, loses sight of the person he used to right. be. Right, so whereas, with, you know. with major exceptions being the fact that he's an immigrant, the fact that he has a son, a small son that he seems to care about a lot. So there is more kind of pathos there than actual <clears throat> yeah. real people who run our government. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's, uh, you know, there, I mean, there's a little bit more depth there than just a parody of well-known figures. Um, and it's not just doing that, but it is, it is doing that to some extent. And there's, because of the dynamics of the film and sort of like the first one was really held up as like being the first like female centered superhero film. So there's a lot of like girl power kind of messaging in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think it's in a like an eye rolling way, like you know, like pandering or anything. Yeah, like you know that that moment of in Avengers Endgame that um, everybody hates. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like that. Like you know, it it just happens to be about a woman character in the eighties. Right. So and it it makes um, sense for the character. I I do, I don't even think about it all that much. Um, exactly. I was also uh, going to say Pe Pedro Pascal is like giving off a lot of like Treat Williams in the Phantom vibes. Uh, yeah, which is not a bad thing. No, treat like he's, Williams is a treat. <laughs> he is, uh, especially in that film, playing like the least threatening kind of cornball villain. 
Um, there's another movie Pedro Pascal was in. Um, he was. It was actually directed by my improv mentor Brian o- James O'Connell. Um, he did this movie called Blood Sucking Bastards, and it's it's the pit, the elevator pitch is it's office space, but uh, with vampires that gets okay. overrun with vampires. Um, and he plays the like the corporate bloodsucker vampire um, who like comes in and, and it's a fun movie. Um, so he's done uh, stuff like this before. Yeah, it, but the thing is, I think he is such a good fucking actor um, that his character in Bloodsucking Bastards is similar roots, but he plays it differently. He plays it in a different key and. He's one of those actors who can do that, who can play, you know, a similar archetype, but you can tell the difference. Um, you know, in Bloodsucking Bastards, he is, uh, he, you know, he is an evil vampire overlord. He's still, like, chewing up the scenery, um, but it's, you know, he doesn't have that pathos. He doesn't have that, uh, the kid. He doesn't have the stuff that grounds him and makes him redeemable i'm not mm-hmm. redeemable um sympathetic sympathetic yeah yeah um so i i don't know i think i think that it's a pretty broad performance but it reveals more layers than maybe it was even intentionally written um through the performance as it goes totally and i i think kind of all of the like I think the uns- the main ensemble here is pretty good, and my uh, only issue with Kristen Wiig's character because I actually I like the way that all turned out. It actually took me a minute to realize she was going to be Cheetah. And well, okay, yeah. Now we're getting to my issues with the movie, right? But, uh, okay. okay, so so they introduce her. It, I mean, this is basically the the Jim Carrey Batman Forever arc, you know. Or sure, which yeah. was which was kind of repeated in with uh, Uma Thurman in uh, and uh, Batman and Robin, and with, was also repeated in Amazing Spider-Man Two with, with Jamie Fox with Jamie Fox, and Electra. also it's, it's the mousy <laughs> the mousy nerd gets uh, some taste of power and then gets it, immediately corrupted. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And you know she feels wronged by the world and blah blah blah. And I think all of that plays okay. My big issue with it is she becomes immediately obsessed with Diane with no previous scene before it. I mean, it's like love at first sight. And they don't even like write that in such a way that feels natural. It's just like in this scene, you are so in love, you can't even believe it. And that's how I, the it starts at like a fever pitch at the beginning of the movie. And I think they're trying to drive home like obsession. And that's fine. But it doesn't feel natural, and they become friends, like, immediately. It's just like, she just, like, enters the picture, and now it, they've been best friends forever, or might as well have been. The, from there, it's fine. It's just that first introductory scene is, I was worried. When That's <laughs> funny that, that that was your issue with it. Uh, mine, mine is the opposite. Uh, so, I actually didn't have a problem with her character until the end, when she becomes fucking cheetah out of nowhere, her final Where, form. Yeah, I, and, and I, I, th- I, I thought wish that they, made sense. I mean, especially given mm, what here's the Pedro thing. Pascal wish, was like giving everybody their wishes, and things were going off the rails quickly. Sure, but she. So my problem with it is like she 
God, I'm, I can't think of the, uh, the name of her job, the title of her job. Um, She's like an archaeologist or, or an uh, anthropologist or something? Yes, anthropologist, yeah. right? Um, I don't know. I guess I wanted them to at least like plant the seed of like why she would be a cheetah. Uh, because well, there's one like... kind of throwaway line where she sees uh, Diane's shoes, Wonder Woman's shoes, and they're like these cheetah print um pumps and she's like "Ooh, cheetah print you know like makes a face and that's it and then exactly (laughs) exactly that's my point like i thought her becoming the evil why does jim carrey suddenly decide he is the question mark man besides the fact that he has that weird zoltron machine in his room (laughs) that's not my my point my point is i thought her stealing Wonder Woman's powers. Not that Batman Forever is like a great movie anyway, but go ahead. I thought that her becoming this evil, like sort of opposite of Wonder Woman was just a lot more interesting than her ending up looking like uh, she was in the movie Cats. Like, I, I just, I, it was like, I don't know. It was like a downgrade. Like she's as right, powerful I, I and as strong as Wonder Woman. And now she's like, I want to be my own thing, which is, significantly less powerful. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It just, it rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, and here's the thing. I generally, I, you know, I am like stick with the source material, but I was just like digging the vibe they already had going with her. I didn't need her to be full When she finally goes evil, because it is like a long arc in the film. Um, When she finally goes evil and she just has more eyeliner on and like this, uh, some sort of animal jacket. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was kind leather of a, and cheetah print skirt. Right. It was kind of a cool look. And it was, it was one of those like superhero or supervillain on a budget costumes. It's like believable that somebody would want to look like that, but also kind of looks like a costume. But it was kind of working for me. No, like, yeah, me too. I was kind of into it. Um, what I wasn't into is the runtime, which is easily a half an hour too long. Yes, and there's also like stuff that could have easily been cut, like the 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 prologue with her as a kid. I was like, okay, yeah. Uh, if you have to have that scene, don't make it fucking fifteen minutes. Yeah, that should have been five minutes tops. Yeah, and and I also could say maybe didn't need to happen, but it was just kind of an excuse to get uh, Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen back. Right. Which, and to sure. see her as a kid in, in, uh, where is she from again? Oh, I can't, I can't think of the name because you asked me. Okay. Nerd points immediately lost. I, you know what? I've never been as into Wonder Woman. So maybe that's why I'm okay with Cheetah not going full Cheetah. Maybe that's why I'm okay. Not seeing, uh, I don't, Themyscira? I don't remember. I think it's Themyscira. Sure. I don't know. Patrick's going to angry tweet us later. <laughs> yes, so. he will. He'll um, let us know. You know what? I was actually surprised. Uh, we didn't see Diane doing much lawyering in this movie Yeah, it's at all. fine. I don't. Eh, sure. I, I, I mean, here. I, I'm the dork that actually cares about, like, what they do when they're not superheroes. Like, I would read a whole graphic novel of Batman just trying to run a company when he doesn't a- get any sleep. Well, there is an issue that uh, Tom King wrote where Batman and Superman go on a double date, and it is the most fun comic ever. You should read it. Yeah. 
some of my favorite episodes of the Batman animated series was more to do with his Bruce Wayne stuff than the Batman stuff. Um, okay. So let me, we, we've talked a lot about this movie and I haven't talked about my serious problems. What's run your serious problems is, besides the length? Run, uh, yes. Runtime is one of them. Some of the weird ass rules that are never explained for this wishing stone. Like why does Steve Trevor have to come back in a yuppies in like some dude's body? Yeah. He has to possess somebody. Yeah. That was weird and never totally clear. And I don't think needed it. Like, mm-hmm. but whatever. Uh, there's this weird coda at the end, which is so unnecessary. The like Christmas scene. I guess I don't remember, but it's, I'll take it's your literally word for it. Diana just like hanging out at Christmas, and the guy who Steve like possessed comes. Oh up right, to right, her. right, and he and I guess that was the only reason why they had yeah. that whole thing. But totally bizarre. Um, and there's just some weird editing issues. Like there's this scene where. Wonder Woman is learning how to fly by catching the wind, catching clouds with her lasso and like flying with it. And then the next scene, she shows up in this fucking crazy armor. Yeah, it's like we missed a scene. Yeah, it is they, very They do jarring. introduce the armor earlier in the film, but there's That's no... Fine. There's That's no reason fine. why she changes into it. No, or where I thought... Or when. <laughs> I thought it was going to be because she was, like, losing her powers. I was like, oh, right. cool. She's losing her powers. She's going to need this armor suit. So, basically, my criticism of this movie comes down to my big problem with the first movie. The ending is kind of a CGI clusterfuck mess. Yes, I actually, I give the edge as far as that goes. Um, I do give the edge to 1984 over the first film because the first one just felt like a boss battle from God of War. That's true. This, Which, where, this where she's just fighting that. some giant lava monster, I don't give a fuck about. This, at least, is character-oriented, and, you know, we have Pascal there, like, doing crazy stuff, and it's, like, the struggle between his power and his son and its humanity, and, like, there's character dilemma going on. Yes. You don't, no, you're, you're, you don't have you're as right. much of that as, as, in the first film. As far as that goes, I agree with you. Uh, I, I guess I'm more referring to the big, dumb CGI fight with Cheetah, which is exactly the same. See, as the, I didn't mind that whole sequence oh, as much it. as I you I hated did. it. It pissed me off. It was just <laughs> like, it felt like all this buildup and that's it. Like, that's that's the payoff. There was no, like, emotional uh, stakes to it uh-huh. because it's just these two CGI blurs. Like, I don't know. It just... It really dropped me in a in a big way, which I was totally with the movie up to that point. Okay, yeah. I mean, I could see why... Yeah, I, I just wasn't as bothered by that. I thought it was a pretty logical conclusion to that whole thing. Um, what I was going to say about her flying around in the clouds and lassoing her way, like, kind of like Spider-Man does with, you know, his uh, web through buildings. Mm. I think it's scenes like that and the cheetah fight scene at the end, and Pedro Pascal acting real weird through a lot of the movie. Um, I think this is a stuff that is really turning people off. Oh, and her turning the jet invisible with these magical powers. See, that, uh, I actually really, because the invisible no, the invisible it, jet has always been super corny. I liked this too. I liked the invisible jet. Right. It was a good moment for them to justify to bring in the invisible jet without it being 
as dumb as it could be. But yeah, it, the only thing is, it's literally like, oh, I, I have this special invisibility spell that I'm only going to try once, once yeah. and never need to get, like, I, I liked the setup. It bothered me that, again, they never used it. There was kind of, I feel like this movie's a lot of buildup with not a lot of payoff. Uh, it's There's smaller in scale. I mean, I mean, the end, I mean, they're literally like launching nukes and shit, but, but in general, it is a more kind of intimate story about these four or five characters and their yes. little personal dilemmas, um, yeah. and trying to stop that. a magic stone. It's not, it's not an epic size story. And I actually like that about it. And I like the fact that those things that I was talking about that are kind of like hokey and comic booky and not comic booky in a like Avengers Endgame sort of way, but comic booky in like a 1980s and 70s silver age comic kind of way. Yeah. Um I like the 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 way that that plays. Now, when Joel Schumacher tried to capture that same camp aesthetic, mm-hmm. it didn't work as well. Or sometimes it did, most of the time it didn't. I actually feel like uh this isn't tonally that far off from Batman Forever. And right. and I think I think part of the reason why Joel Schumacher got so much shit for it was because it's it you know this was a post uh Dark Knight Returns comic book Batman World, a post Tim Burton's Batman World, and people didn't want the camp from Batman anymore. They wanted darkness, they wanted the brooding. Right. Uh uh But it's important whereas it's important to remember that Batman Forever was a gigantic massive hit that made more money than Batman Returns, and people didn't really start changing their tune about Joel Schumacher until Batman and Robin came out, which yeah, is that, significantly that's, worse. That's that's fair. Um, um, and so I I don't I actually I kind of still enjoy Batman Forever. I uh, on a purely camp level, I like Batman and Robin now. I can it's so bad, but it's so fun. So I think, to me, Wonder Woman... This movie has a little bit of that. This movie has a little bit of that, but I think it actually... It still works enough as a sincere yeah. superhero film. And I I like the characters. I don't think Gal Gadot is great. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to say that she's terrible, but there is a handicap to her acting. I don't know. I I don't... I think... It's not a... It's not a... Uh, it's, you know, it's like if you can put up with, if you can get over the handicap of Schwarzenegger, it's oh, kind of in that th- world. I don't think so at all. I like Schwarzenegger I, I, films. I like Schwarzenegger in those movies, but he is working with a limited actor's palette, and so is Gal Gadot. Um, sure. Yes. I I agree. I don't know. Sure. Yes. <laughs> That's all I'll say on the subject. I don't think she's ruining the movie, and if once you buy into everything because there's a lot that you have to buy into in this film. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the problem for a lot of people. Um, Then I'm okay with it, but you have to sort of accept, you have to accept the tone of the film and the tone is like really loud and kind of stupid. It's it's very (laughs) eighties. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Here's the thing. The tone of the movie. I actually loved. Yeah. I loved seeing a uh, very, colorful superhero who who literally would not kill like who who went out of her way who inconvenienced herself Mm -hmm. to to save these people uh who 
could have easily just been like, you know, disposable goons. Like they make a point that, no, she's a damn hero. She's going to dispatch them with as minimal violence as possible. I think that is very much needed, uh, uh, is a very much needed palate cleanser for DC specifically. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. Yes, this movie has problems. It has some some technical issues. It has... I. I wonder if there's a better cut of this movie. I'm not going to go insane and be like, release the Jenkins cut. <laughs> um, uh, but I wouldn't want a longer cut. If anything, I would want them to keep trimming. Yes. And, and get agree. it more streamlined. Um, I think that's the biggest problem with this, this, this movie. movie should, is, if this had been a movie had been a 90 minute deal and they'd been able to, you know, kind of economically tell the same story, I don't yeah. even think people would be as upset with it. But because yeah. it's kind of lumbering and big and messy and it comes up with ideas and then drops them later on. It's And it's not like – like I said, it's not really a good movie. But I don't think it's awful or even embarrassing. It's just fine. I I think it's a little bit better than fine. Um, I, I think the reason I'm saying that is – I, it harkens back to an older style of superhero movie, yeah. to a pre-Marvel superhero movie, and I think that's why people don't that's like why it. why I brought up The Phantom. Yeah. Uh, Which is but, also unfairly maligned. But I <laughs> generally enjoy that type of story. I enjoy mm-hmm. superheroes. I enjoy superhero storytelling. Like, it it doesn't all have to be totally logical. Right. Uh, it's just and it they're doing all, it. It doesn't always have to be super slick and super market tested like the Marvel movies, and it doesn't have to be super dark and gritty like some of the DC movies. Exactly. So I actually, because it's playing into this nostalgia in some in some fun ways, that helps. I think it. Yeah, it it kind of was a breath of fresh air. Like, and I love Marvel, but you know, I. Admit, I I think even I'm feeling a little bit of Marvel fatigue. Uh, so I, it was just nice to see, like, you can still do superhero movies where they're, uh, you know, big and, and flashy and corny and heartfelt. And that's okay. And I, that's what I liked yeah. about this movie. Yeah. This movie does have a ton of heart. Um, a movie I would compare it a little bit to is the Shazam film. Um, yeah. That came out. And I think that is a more successful version. And I think that that movie is told a little bit better. I, uh, I think largely it, it's a bit more forgiven because it it is actively a kid's movie. Like it is and actively a kids. comedy. Yeah. And so I think that's why people didn't turn on it the way they turned on Wonder Woman 84. That I, That's just my conjecture. And let's be real. Um, it's marketed toward 14 year old boys and this movie's marketed toward girls. Yeah. And I don't mean, I'm, I, I mean that to say that when, that when movies are specifically marketed towards women and are star women, they always have like a bigger hurdle to get yeah. fanboys involved. Yeah, it's true. I, I, that is a very real problem. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not fair for this movie. Um, no. And I'm also not excusing the stupid stuff in this movie that it's, you know, just reactionaries being reactionary. There is reasons why, like valid reasons why this movie isn't great. But I think it's also kind of being shredded for those reactionary elements. All right. 
what do you what is your grade for Wonder Woman? It's a C plus. Okay. Yeah. Uh I I'm teetering between a B minus and a B. Um so I'll I'll for the sake of uh I don't remember what I gave Shazam, but I'll give this a B. I'll give it a solid B. Okay. Yeah. And aesthetically, there's there are people for whom this is going to be their bread and butter. I mean, it kind of was for me. I was so into it until, except the fact that it, it just like fatigued me yeah. because it's way too long. Yeah. If, if it even clocked two hours, I think it would have gone up to a B plus, A minus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely needed a, a stronger edit for sure. Um, okay, let's go ahead and now talk about the streaming homework. An older film was made in the 80s, Valley Girl, 1983, uh, directed by Martha Coolidge. And one of the first films that uh, Nicolas Cage was ever in. I think he was in one movie before this, and he might have even still gone by Coppola um, at that mm-hmm. time. But this is a teen romantic comedy about a girl named uh, Julie who lives in the Valley, uh, sort of like the North Hollywood, Burbank, Van Nuys area in 1983, in the middle of the 80s. And her and her affluent Valley girl friends are trying to find like the perfect suitable mate that's going to make them more popular and uh, more of a social fit for them in their, you know, more social capital in their uh, ecosystem of uh, rich suburbanites. Um, in, in comes Nicolas Cage and his punk rocker friend. Um, they come from the other side of the hill, more kind of uh, South Hollywood. Uh, and they somehow end up at one of these uh, valley parties. And it's love at first sight. Uh, Julie and Randy, Nicolas Cage's character, um catch each other and they're wrong for each other in every way possible uh, socially and they don't have any of the same interests and their friends hate each other um, ab- absolutely is terrible for her uh, social capital in her world um, and economically there's a big difference there too but uh, they have kind of a hot summer romance regardless Um but there's a little bit of kind of a a like love triangle, will they, won't they sort of situation with Michael Bowen as Tommy, the asshole who's like every asshole you've seen in an 80s movie. <laughs> with like a p- every asshole you've seen in a movie. I just looked him up and uh, he even played a Buck from Kill Bill. Yeah, yeah, and he 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 plays a cop in Jackie Brown. He's a he's a well known character actor. Um. But, you know, this is one of his earlier deals. Uh, and he plays, like, the popped-collar, polo-shirt douchebag in, in every 80s teen movie. Um, and he's, like, you know, sleeping with a friend and blah, blah, blah. And, obviously, you're supposed to be rooting for Randy, the kid on the other side of the tracks. Um, but what did you think of Valley Girl? I did not care for this movie <laughs> at all. I kind of hated it uh, hated okay i th- i thought there there were moments uh 
Um, I thought it was pretty boring. Uh, I thought their few... Uh, here's the thing. They lost me when they tried to convince me that Nicolas Cage and this other guy were like punk rockers. Right. It's... It's, it doesn't come from an informed place. We'll no, say it is a very valley view of, of <laughs> punk rock. Um, yeah, they go to like a punk bar in Hollywood and it's literally like the same like tepid power pop new wave band that's there every single time they go to the club. Yeah. Playing the same songs. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that was immediately turned me off. And I mostly just thought it was pretty boring and not that funny like an 80s romantic comedy should be. And yeah. I I just feel like I have seen this movie uh, done better so many different thousand times that I I kind of respected it in the, the way that I was like, oh, well, this is probably where a lot of that stuff comes from. But I just kind of didn't care because I feel like it's just been done better and better and better. I would say watch Grease. Just fucking watch Grease instead because it's the exact same story but with much better music. I like the music in this film. I actually liked, there's a lot of like dumb poppy eighties, new wave stuff. Uh, and this is very soundtrack heavy. I would say that this movie, okay, you're right. Some of the music is fine. It's just, I, I don't, the aesthetics are not the problems with this movie. Cause I didn't love it, but um, I thought that aesthetically it's, it's exactly what I was watching it. Like, yeah, no, you're right there. I guess it just, I should give a little bit of a history on this. The whole concept of the Valley Girl, uh, as we think of them, the stereotype of the Valley Girl with like, you know, the, the SoCal accent and like so totally and to the max and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I won't do a Valley Girl impression. I could, but I won't. Uh, I will say uh, it, it was nice that in this movie, uh, and I don't know if this movie is kind of where a lot of that stuff or originated, but like I, I liked that it. It hadn't become an impression of it yet. Like, they just said it. It w- There was no irony to it. There was no, like, uh, lilt. Uh, like, inten- you know, like, yeah. oh, my God. There was no intentional thing like that. It was just their vernacular. Well, this is how kids talk. I mean, probably yeah. not to this extent, but it was supposed to be somewhat naturalized by the actors. It wasn't supposed to be a joke in and of itself. Um, But the idea, that sort of accent, those terms, all of this came from a sort of novelty song that Moon Zappa wrote around 1979, 1980. Um, And that song, it was never like a huge hit. It was kind of like a disco duck kind of thing. Where where these lines are kind of thrown in, in between the verses of like this very over-the-top valley girl saying stupid things. Um, And... This film made a few, a couple of years later, I think was like trying to sort of capitalize on the cult hit of that song. Okay. Um, and I think that the idea of the Valley girl to some extent was popularized through this film. Now this wasn't like a huge movie. This is pretty low budget, even for 1983 standards. And you can definitely tell like the sound design is really poor. It's mm-hmm. kind of a little hard to hear people in this movie. Like, yeah, uh, it's a little muddy, muddy and a little muffled when they're talking to each other. Uh, and the, the needle drops and stuff are sometimes kind of like just dropped in there, very kind of clunky. Um, there's not a lot of like, you know, slick fade ins or anything like that. Uh, and yeah, I do think the movie is severely underwritten. I don't even necessarily think that the story's bad. The story's fine. It's archetypal. 
But yeah. because it's just, even before Grace, there was a thousand movies about like the girl falling in love with the guy on the wrong side of the tracks. Exactly. Yes. Um. I I just this movie feels like the beginning of a slasher movie. <laughs> But the slasher never shows up. And so you're just like, oh, okay. I guess these are just, this is what we're stuck with. (laughs) That's what it felt like to me. Right. I mean, that could have been a way to go, I guess. But, but yeah, I don't don't even think that the story's a problem. The the problem for me is that once we get to the third act, or the, even the second act, the movie just kind of goes into neutral. Yeah. And it doesn't quite know what to do. It's like, okay, we got these characters. We have a moral dilemma in that they shouldn't be together, but they want to be together. But she's trying to decide what which guy to be with. But they don't really do anything with that. And they don't really know how to direct the story in a way that's like dramatically interesting. So yeah. instead, you just get a bunch of montage and a bunch of music. And just- which, if you don't know how to write a movie, that's a good way to pad it out. Um, yes. I didn't also, mind I, it. I, I purely the, as kitsch, purely as kitsch, I didn't mind the movie. I think it's kind of cute. It's dumb. It's a throwback, you know. I just thought it was boring. It's a time capsule from another time. I actually think, I totally get why people saw this movie and saw Nicolas Cage and said, this guy's going to be big. Yeah, I think he's fine. I, and it's it, not it, just it, that I know that he becomes big because he's Nicolas Cage, but... You see him, and he has a ton of charisma in this movie. He has uh, kind of, um, uh, I think he has some Rygos vibes. Sure. um, He's a lot hunkier back then. Yeah. Yeah. No, that wasn't, that didn't set me off at all. It was just, I just thought it was pretty boring. Like, it It wasn't really that funny. What was going on with the parents in this movie? Oh, my God. (laughs) So the dad is like... Who it, looks like Sonny Bono, but isn't. Yeah, and he looks like he's firmly in his 40s. Oh. The mom looks like... Uh, I love he, this, by the way. There's <laughs> the mom, a scene where they're at a party giving away, like, juice or whatever. At this, like, teen drinking sex party, and the parents are just, like, there hanging. Um, yeah. It was a different time, whatever. But they're, like, serving drinks to kids, and she, like, turns over and she's like, blah, 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 mom. And I'm like... Mom looks younger right? than you. <laughs> right? You were definitely yes. the same age. All of the moms were were younger. The yes, people casting this film were terrified of middle-aged women. Yeah. Um like could like I, legally could not be on set. Somebody over the age of 30. Oh my god. It's and also insane. the teens are a little bit like too old to be playing the ages they're yeah, playing. So it, it's a weird everybody, thing. Everybody Except the main dad looks like they're the same age. They all look like they're firmly in their mid to late 20s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, I also just thought like, and maybe it's because the story is so archetypal and they didn't really do anything interesting with it. Yeah. But I just thought the subplots were more interesting. Like the girl who slept with the boyfriend and didn't know whether and to And I kept waiting friend. for that to come back because that's how you write movies. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> And, the, and, and instead, it's just, just this, like, you know, a gun that's revealed in the first act that never comes back again. Totally. And the same thing with the friend who wants to sleep with the girl's mom. And I'm like, I was yeah. way more into that. I actually thought that was, like, pretty funny. 
And I was like waiting for him to sleep with the mom and for that to get kind of real. I, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't expect it to get real. But I think that there that was an attempt at doing like the like raucous 80s sex comedy thing. It's barely in there, you know. And they just didn't know what to do with it. But I was way right. more into that because I was like, there's kind and of also she's a young hot mom. It made a lot of sense, right? I mean, it's also extremely inappropriate by today's standards. But there's an aspect of the movie in the way that it's written and the way that's made. Like I said, it's almost more soundtrack than movie, yeah. um, and it's very padded out. There's an aspect of it that feels almost like an exploitation film. And Almost, I think maybe but... that's the mode my brain clicked into when I was watching it. I was like, oh, this is more of an artifact than a movie. Um, yeah, but I, I, but even for that, I wanted it to be, if it's... It's tamer from... than that. Like, there's the exploitable element here is just the concept of teenagers. But, yeah. and there used to be exploitation films in the 60s and stuff that was just that. They were just teen movies. You know, as a little bit of TNA, but for the most part, it was just about kids like playing on the beach or whatever. Um, sure. And there's I an just, aspect guess... of that in this film, but it's, yeah, I'm not going to say it's a good movie. It mostly isn't, but I it's do kind of enjoy it. It's not kitsch enough to keep my interest. And it just, I don't know, fell flat. And I think, I think, watch The Wedding Singer instead. But it's... you do see a lot of it in other films that would later come. I think. Like even um, I was thinking like Twilight in in parts of this movie, uh, yeah. and um, even like Clueless to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, like there's a lot I, of movies where I feel like this was definitely seen and enjoyed um, by a lot of those filmmakers. Yeah, I and I think they did what a filmmaker should do and take it and make it into a good thing. <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't care for this movie at all. I was so bored and kind of checked out with it. By the time the uh, he's trying to win her back, I was just right. Like, the winning her back montage. Um, that's when the movie just stops giving a shit, and I'm yeah. like, great, we still have like forty minutes left. No, at that point, we maybe had twenty minutes left. It was almost it, wraps up it, too fast. That's when like I wanted story minutes. to happen. Instead, they were montaging yeah. Elizabeth Daly. The short, kind of squeaky best friend character who has sex with a boyfriend. Yeah. Also the voice of Tommy Pickles. And oh, okay. two of the three uh, Powerpuff Girls, I think. Uh, she was also one of the only characters that I thought was even kind of fun and interesting. Right. She would have been better as the lead. But this is back in the day when character actors couldn't be the leads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I didn't care for it, but whatever. And that's fine. I, this isn't this is, like this isn't a good film. And there's I'm glad a, I have your permission to not to, to like dislike the movie. it. Yeah, I I kind of liked it. I didn't. I'm not going to say that it's great because it's not. Uh, but I kind of enjoyed it about the exact same level I enjoyed Wonder Woman 1984, just for slightly different reasons. I didn't. I still enjoyed Wonder Woman way more. I think if this just had a str stronger s script, it would have been better. I mean, that seems kind of obvious, but I think, like, the cast is fine. Maybe a little miscast in the case of the mothers. But I like the aesthetic of it. I think the music's great. I like, you know, it's filmed fine. The direction's under budget, but fine. Uh, yeah. I think if it just had a stronger screenplay, you know, if you'd had... 
somebody who could yeah, find the drama like, in the obvious drama of the story. And then, had jokes in the parts that are supposed to be funny. Right. And it's not like there wasn't better teen movies at this time, because there were a ton. Um, even just a year before this, Amy Heckerling, who would later go on to do Clueless, did Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a far superior film. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, all the John Hughes movies that came after this. Totally. I mean, you're right. I can see how it influenced films. I just don't necessarily need to see where that influence comes from all the time. <laughs> I think I think a big part of it also is, like, you know, we've grown up with all of the stuff that is better, that it, that it influenced, like mm. Clueless, like Wedding Singer, like all of these Pretty movies pink, we've mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sure that colors my experience. If I had seen this as a, a young adult, you know, as a teen in the 80s, like... I, I probably would have liked it more, but... See, I think is like a, a kind of trashy drive-in movie. It's fine. Um, I guess. It's just... It's, just a, it's not even like trashy enough to be really fun. No, it's, I don't mean trashy in the sense that it's like super lurid or, or you know, I mean, there's a little bit of sex. There's a little bit of naughtiness, but it's, it's pretty um, tame. Although... Which, we, we also did watch it. We watched on, it on YouTube, uh, YouTube, and there was a weird disclaimer at the beginning that said that it was edited uh, yeah. for time and content, and that was weird to me. So who knows what the actual cut of this movie is? And may, maybe, a, maybe. Now uh, on IMDb, it doesn't say that it's significantly longer than the cut that's on YouTube. So maybe there was just like one weird, random ass rape scene they cut out because it the, doesn't age well. Well, I think um I think there was a part with like when they uh when the friend slept with the boyfriend. Yeah. Um where it seemed like it was kind of zoomed in. So I wonder if it was like they were cropping like nudity Stop. out or I don't know. Yeah. Um that's kind of the vibe I'm getting which just a little more anything. Really, a little more comedy, a little more drama. A, a little more luridness, a little, just a little more. Yeah. No, I agree with you. That's what, my biggest, my biggest criticism of it is just, it's underwritten. Um, severely. Yeah. Uh, and, and we should mention that we did watch this on YouTube. You have to pay for it other places, but you can watch it with ads on YouTube. YouTube has a weird, like, streaming service now. And now that I've watched this, it's a recommending me all sorts of weird shit. As YouTube wants to do. Yeah. Uh, but they have kind of like a movie service in there. It's not just like back in the day when you had to watch it in like six pieces because oh, some okay. random poster would put it on with the image reversed. Yeah, I thought that I thought it was weird, but I was like, oh, this seems legit. So yeah, it has a. It basically they. It's like Tubi. You know, it's like a free service where as long yeah. as it's ads, you can watch it. Um, so they have some catalog titles on there that you can watch. So um, that's where you would watch it if you want to. I have no opinion of this Amazon remake, um, but I do think it's kind of interesting that it came out this year. Um, okay. If anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about, what is your favorite 80s films? Did you like Wonder Woman 1984? Or are you a sexist? Patrick, um, read me for <laughs> filth. <laughs> yes. What is the na- What's the name of the island that... Uh, the Amazonians come from. I'm pretty sure it's the Mascara. It's something like that. Or Lesbos. It's not that. 
<laughs> um, go ahead and email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media at mcguffinpod, Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can follow me individually at VC Casty on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. Um, we are downloadable and streamable on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Player.fm. Yeah, uh, please give us a review. Yes. Um, and I think that's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, I am going to say that the Isle of Lesbos is a real thing, so don't cancel me for, for saying <laughs> that. Uh, it was a real thing from Greek mythology, or no, from just Greek history, right? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's great. Google the Isle of Lesbos. It's a thing. Uh, it's a thing in like <laughs> notably where female warriors came from. I'm not just being a fucking asshole. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid to tell me I'm a fucking asshole. You can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, and I have an art account on Instagram uh, at Sticky Note Aesthetic, which I haven't posted anything on it for a minute, but. Um, I've, I've been working on some commission stuff that I'll be posting soon. So um, you can check that out. Yes. And that's going to be it for the episode. Life is good, but it could be better. Bye.